If you would please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 18. I'm having trouble getting this thing to open up. So give me just a moment here. Oh. There it goes. And that's the Sunday school lesson. All right. So Acts chapter 18, we're going to have a little bit different of an approach today to this message because it's going to be kind of like two sermons in one, but don't worry, that doesn't mean it's going to be twice as long. It's actually a little shorter than than most of the longer ones. Um, What I mean is we're going to read the text once through to kind of get a feel for the flow of it, and then uh, we're going to go over it a second time to do some expounding on the scripture itself, and then we're going to go... you know, and kind of get some historical background and context and all that stuff. But then we're going to do one more pass. And this is a bird's eye view at four little phrases that show up in today's passage. Okay, And I believe that those, those four phrases can remind us of the mission of the church, both corporately and individually for each of us as Christians. So uh, without further ado, let's dive in. Um, starting in verse 1. After this, that means sometime after speaking at Mars Hill, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Will you bow with me? Father, I just thank you for this day. I thank you for this group of people. Father, as I look out, uh, just see the, the family of God. It's encouraging to see them. I pray, Lord, that you bless each person that's here. I pray for all those who were not unable to be here this morning. I just ask that you protect and watch over all of us, uh, Father, and, and that you will help us to truly trust and love you in a way that is reflected in our lifestyles, and when people see it, it draws them to you. God, I ask that this morning, as we look at the word, that it affects people's lives. And I pray that everyone that's here leaves here not informed, but transformed and being conformed to your will. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Okay, friends, um, we're going to start again at verse 1. Now, if if you've got the talking points sheet, uh, there are no fill-in-the-blanks for this part. There is a space to take notes if you like, okay? Luke begins chapter 18 with, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And something that hit me, uh, you know, when reading this passage was the question, how long after this? Because it says after this, that's the events that he's talking about in chapter 17. How long was it before Paul left Athens and went to Corinth? And we don't know for certain, okay? We know it doesn't say immediately, but it also doesn't say, you know, Paul stayed for such and such a period, which is often what what it does say. So it's kind of hard to know, but it makes me think that last week's passage where Paul was preaching at the Areopagus, the, the Mars Hill And some of the people there said, we will hear you about this again. I can't help but wonder whether they got to. You know, it's it's interesting. He was preaching, 
At the, Are, uh, the, the Areopagus, I have trouble saying that word. And, and if that was the last public sermon that Paul preached in Athens, what happened to those folks who found the gospel me- message intriguing, but not compelling enough to actually place their faith in Jesus right then? Did they get another chance to hear the gospel and, and, and the, the truth? I mean, consider this. You know, the, the gospel being the truth about who Jesus is and what God did to them. It came from Paul. Did they hear it again? Consider this. They were presuming that they'd have another opportunity to hear the gospel, but it's unclear as to whether they actually did. Maybe not. Maybe that was their one chance. And let me encourage you today, friend, if you are on the fence, choose Christ and do it today. Don't wait around. You know, there's no, there's no telling how long that option will be available, presented to us. So anyway, Paul left Athens for Corinth. What do we know about Corinth? Corinth was a rich city. They were very affluent. It was kind of a trading hub. Okay, And so there were a lot of folks that came there for the purpose of buying and selling. And there's a huge diversity of people there. But unfortunately, prostitution was rampant. Even, even uh, in, the, in the sacred temples of these false gods, they had prostitute priestesses. And the inhabitants of that town were extremely immoral. Okay, So much to the point that when people would say to Corinthianize, Someone that was that was a verb that meant to make them to corrupt them to make them immoral. And the church that Paul plants there, it ends up being known for the next almost two thousand years now as a really sad church. You know, perhaps the most spiritually immature congregation that we read about in the whole New Testament. Anyway, so Paul goes there and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Now, there's, there's probably some really interesting history behind this verse, but I didn't find a good source as to why Claudius kicked out the Jews. But I think it's, it's likely to do with Jewish uprisings against the Roman government, because that was very common in this time period. And apparently, first the, the emperor tried shutting down the synagogues, but he still was having problems with the Jews, so finally he just kicked them all out. <laughs> He's like, I've had enough. You guys go somewhere else. So, so Aquila and his wife Prisca, which Priscilla is also, it's kind of an AKA for Prisca. It's, it's a, like a diminutive form, like Bill, Billy, that type thing. Um, they moved to Corinth. They wanted to start a new life there away from persecution. Now, we don't actually know whether Aquila and Priscilla were Christians before they met Paul or not. But we do know that they had been displaced from their home, right? And they'd set up shop in Corinth. We're going to talk more about that soon, but it's, it's interesting to note that this Jewish couple shows up quite a few times in the New Testament because they become important to Paul's ministry later. And it's also kind of cool that at least half the times that they're spoken of by name in the Bible, Priscilla is mentioned first. That's kind of unusual in the Bible. And so I think it's interesting. It may go to show something about her personality or, or her character as being a really strong Solid example of a believer with integrity. Anyway, Luke writes that Paul went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, it says, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. Anybody ever heard the the phrase uh, tent making? A pastor referred to himself as tent making. What does that mean? 
working a secular job, right? It, it, it comes from this passage, and it means, uh, it, it's a reference to a bivocational preacher. In other words, someone who is not employed full-time as a preacher, so he, he supplements his income or maybe gets all of his income from a second career or job. And Paul may not yet have been being supported as a missionary by any other churches, or if he was, then not fully. And so he was working at a trade in order to make enough money to, to live on. And at any rate, Paul ends up staying with Aquila and Priscilla. He's working alongside them to earn his keep. But he was consistently doing something else too. Luke says, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So even though he had settled into like a normal career, you know, at that particular time, Paul was actively reaching out to the folks that he worshiped with. You know, remember, he's going to the synagogues where people are worshiping Yahweh, but they don't know Jesus is the Messiah. These are also displaced Jews, and so he's going to them to share the gospel with them. He wanted them to understand who Jesus was, and one thing that's really neat is that that word that's translated persuade, it means convince, and it, it, it can imply argument, but it doesn't necessarily mean aggression, you know what I mean? Like sometimes when people get into an, an argument, it's more, it's more assertive. And it, that word can even be translated to make friend. So I, I find that interesting. To get people to come across to your own side. And it's great to see that Paul's striving to, to introduce the truth about Christ to people who don't know him because he, he is, as usual, he's a phenomenal example of a Christian that is living the mission of the church. Now, for those of you that enjoy foreshadowing, we're going to be revisiting those two phrases later that uh, are there in the, the bold writing because they really tie into our mission. So you can make a mental note and then we'll continue on our passage. All right, pick it up in verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. I want to pause there just a minute to expound on this, okay? Remember that Paul had been kind of rushed off from Berea back in chapter 16. You remember that? Because a bunch of Jews from Thessalonica wanted to find him and kill him because they didn't like what he was doing. So he, he got kind of hustled out of there, and then his buddies stayed behind for the time being. And all that stuff that happened to Paul in chapter 17 while he was in Athens, that was all while he was there by himself. And so now he's here in Corinth, which is where his companions finally, they catch up to him. And remember um, who these two guys are, right? It talks about Silas and Timothy. Silas was a Jewish prophet, and he had undergone persecution alongside Paul. You remember they got beat together, they got sent to prison together. They sang and prayed at midnight together. They sat through an earthquake that knocked their shackles off together. They baptized their jailer together. He was a very, uh, the Silas was a prominent evangelist like Paul was. Timothy was a very young guy. He may have even been an older teenager at this point. We're not 100% sure of what age he was. But he was, he was Paul's protege, right? Paul was very fond of him. He, he viewed him like his own son. He was kind of like, like a Robin to Paul's Batman, so to speak. You know, he, he, was, he was the guy, who his, his ward. He thought of him as a son. So anyway, these two finally show up at Corinth, and it says that Paul was occupied with the word. And I thought this phrase was really interesting. So I looked it up. I wanted to see what that Greek word was. It's translated occupied. And the word 
literally means held together by. And it's an idiom uh, for being preoccupied, for being compelled, for being taken with. It could even mean being arrested. That's how it's translated sometimes. Preaching the word of God isn't just an occupation for, 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 for Paul. It's a call. It's a calling for him. He was enthralled by the word. He was enamored with revealing its truths to other people, and especially how it presents Christ. See, Luke says that he was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Now, friends, y'all know what that's about, right? I mean, Paul is straight up sharing gospel stuff. <laughs> because you know he's not going to stop, right, with the Christ was Jesus. Because the Apostle Paul, he's the very person who insists that the gospel is the power of salvation for those who believe it. Romans 1.16, right? This is the guy who said that the content of the gospel is that Jesus Christ died for our sins and was raised from the dead, and it happened all according to Scripture, and it was all seen by eyewitnesses, right? 1 Corinthians 15. He was a champion for salvation by grace through faith rather than the law. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, and the whole book of Galatians, right? You know, that's, that's what we can safely assume that Paul was expounding on this, not just saying the Christ was Jesus, guys, and that's it. I'm sure he was elaborating, okay, and tying in Scripture after Scripture from the Old Testament because of who he's talking to. He's clearly very passionate, and he's transparently trying to win converts for Christ. But it didn't go over as well in Corinth as it had in Berea because they opposed him. It says, and when they opposed and reviled him, that means they were slandering him, saying horrible things about him. He shook out his garments, and he said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So these Corinthian Jews were unwilling to listen to the gospel. And so they were rejecting God's salvation because they rejected his Messiah. And so Paul it says that he shook out his garments, which is kind of a symbolic act. You know, like, you know, it's kind of a, like a knocking the dust off your feet, this type thing. He's showing he is done with them, okay? And when he says next, or what he says next, is, is very interesting. It's also important for us to consider. Firstly, he says, your blood be on your own heads. What does that mean? Think about that for just a second. What does it mean that your blood be on your own head? Exactly. He's not responsible. He says, you've made your own bad choice, and you're responsible for the consequences. And we see this in Scripture, in, in the Old Testament, most famously in Ezekiel. We're going to come there in just a moment. But the concept is in the New Testament, too, probably most notably in, in Matthew 27. You know, Jesus is standing before Pontius Pilate. You remember that? He says, I'm innocent of this man's blood, and he washes his hands, and and the crowd says, may his blood be upon us and our children. Basically, what Paul is saying here is, I've done all, you, all, all I can with you guys. I'm done. I've done all I can. You are too stubborn to listen to the truth. That's what he's saying. He's realizing that he's, he's casting his pearls before swine, and then he chooses instead to go to an audience that he knows is going to bear more fruit. Now, before we get to that, though, let's not miss that he says, I am innocent. What's he innocent of? Their blood. 
This is a really important point. I don't want us to miss this. He is innocent of their blood. Why? Because he preached the gospel as he was called to do. And the fact that they didn't receive it is entirely on them, not on him. Now, folks, I've got to admit this. Um, the following did not make it into the slideshow because it came to me later during the manuscripting phase. <laughs> and I didn't want to go back and try to change it again. You know, but, but I'm just going to ask you to bear with me. I'm going to read um, really just this one passage right now. Um, I'm going to give you a reference for your notes, but I, I don't want you to miss this. This is Ezekiel 33. Okay, So if you would write this down, Ezekiel 33. God tells his prophet something, and it really sticks out in my mind. I'm going to read just the first few verses, so, so just listen, please. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, if I bring a sword upon a land, and the people of the land take a man from among them and make him their watchman, and if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning, and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet so that the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes away any one of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. He goes on to say, So you, son of man, this is interesting, foreshadowing, it's this interesting phrase for Ezekiel. So you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. And I, I believe this, this is what the apostle Paul had in mind. I think he was thinking about this when he made that statement. He understood his mission. He understood his calling directly from Jesus Christ himself, he knew that that involved spreading the gospel. And it contained a warning for those who refused to believe. And so Paul recognizes he has completed his responsibility to preach and warn them of the coming sword, so to speak. The wrath of God, the, the eternal judgment, and they weren't willing to listen. So he is innocent. He has fulfilled his obligation and he's moved on. He has a clear conscience about it. How many of us have ever experienced the blessing of a truly clear conscience? Wow. I was going to raise my hand while asking the question and then realized, I'm not sure I have. When you know that you've done all that God required of you in a specific instance, and you believe you've received his permission to move on, I think there's a sense in which that is a clean conscience. And it can be tough, but it is incredibly freeing. I'll tell you, I think most of us in here probably thought, I don't know, I've never had... I think there have been times, though, where we've had a clear conscience about something because the Holy Spirit will speak to our spirit within us and say, hey, you've done what you can do. We should look for that in our lives. Sometimes you've done all you can do. Doesn't mean you stop praying. 
In fact, Paul talks, a couple of other places, he talks about having a clean conscience. We can certainly appreciate its importance. Having a clean conscience or a clear conscience is very, very important. Uh, But anyway, we're going to end the sidebar. Paul goes on to say that from now on, he will go to the Gentiles. And this is one of the two phrases in this paragraph I really want to come back to. So all I'll say right now is Paul did not entirely stop preaching to Jewish people because we see him again just in chapter 19, and he's evangelizing in a synagogue again. He does that over a three-month period. However, that was in Ephesus. So what he's probably saying here in this particular circumstance, he's, he's probably saying he's not going to spend any more time trying to convince the Jews in Corinth, but he's going to reach out to Gentiles instead. All right. So now, as promised, we're going to take a few minutes now. We're going to go back over those four phrases that were highlighted in verses 3 through 6 because I think they help us have a pretty solid understanding of what it means to live the mission of the Christian faith and of the body of Christ. We're going to start with, he stayed with them and worked. Bless you. Remember, this is where uh, Luke mentions that Paul moves in with Aquila and Priscilla. And it's, it's a really good thing that he found them. You know, there's probably several good reasons for them to, to, to connect. You know, for one thing, it, it's a natural, it's a familial connection between people of similar backgrounds. You know, they're all three Jewish, you know, by background, for one thing. Now, it's possible Aquila and Priscilla were not yet Christians when they met Paul, but I doubt they would have allowed him to stay with them if they were not Christians, at least by the time they came to that conclusion, Right? Otherwise, they would have been probably ostracized by their fellow Jews. And also, I don't think that Paul, based on other things he said in other places, I don't think he wanted to be unequally yoked with unbelievers in a business venture, you know, which tent making would be. And so it's likely this couple were either already believers when they met Paul or else they converted early after meeting Paul. And so I think that's probably what happened. But, but then there's the fact they obviously shared a profession, right? So that helps. And maybe since Priscilla and Aquila had so recently been displaced and had to find a new place to live, you know, maybe they, maybe they needed some financial help. So maybe it was helpful for Paul to move in with them. I'd like to think that being temporarily homeless themselves not that long ago probably made them a little bit more sensitive to Paul's situation. But either way, it's obvious the Spirit of God had revealed to them what Paul was going to write years later that they should seek to contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. You know, in America, um, most of us are pretty, I think, pretty good about having friends over and family over to our homes, and that's a good thing. But in the early church, people actually made it a practice to have strangers in their homes, fellow believers who had nowhere to stay. I mean, they, they would literally house refugees while they're trying to find a permanent place to live. Y'all, that is a Christian response. Providing biblical hospitality is is a godly, Christ-like example that we should all strive to show in our own walks. Now, before you go to the corner and collect the homeless people and bring them to your house, I'm going to say, you got to use a little discernment, (laughs) okay? But at the same time, recognize we fall far short Next, we see that Paul tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So once again, the, the, the focus in the persuading was to point them to Jesus Christ, right? And so, so that they might receive the gospel, so that they might be saved. 
And Paul was apparently the first Christian that really tried to evangelize Corinth. And so there was a whole lot of opposition to him. But Paul knew the importance of sharing the truth. I mean, this is the guy that wrote Romans, right? You know, he wrote Romans 10, especially. He says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will what? Will be saved, sure. And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without somebody preaching? You know, in order for people to be transformed by the gospel, they got to hear it. So the, the apostle was intent on preaching it. And then we read that Paul was occupied with the word. We saw that the word translated occupied is actually more intense in the Greek. We talked about that. You know, Paul, he was totally wrapped up in God's word. And he absolutely should have been. Why? Because the word is the primary means by which we know God. Think about that. When you are dating your spouse and they sent you little love letters, did you crumple them up and throw them in the trash? I hope not. <laughs> I hope you still have some of them. You care about what was written to you by someone you love, don't you? The Bible is how God reveals himself to us. It's one of the primary ways. And I think it's worth considering that maybe the way, perhaps the way that we view his word is actually reflective of how we view him. I mean, I want you to think about this. A person who claims to love Jesus but has no desire to read his word is like a person who claims to love their spouse but never really listens to them or plans to spend any time with them. The love might be there, but it's merely a dry commitment rather than a passionate relationship. And something else to consider is that we have a, we will anyway have a harder time obeying God if we don't listen to him through his word. And Jesus was pretty, he, he was pretty clear. He said very plainly that love and obedience are inextricably linked. You know, they go together. You cannot separate the two. In John 14, Jesus says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. He goes on to say, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So the more love that we show to Christ through the obedience of his commands, the more he reveals himself to us. That's the Holy Spirit, by the way, that's not in my notes. It hit me right then. So being occupied with the word is a way in which we express our feelings for God. And to ignore it may be showing him that we really don't care that much. I mean, whether we feel that way or not, the evidence shows that those two things are connected. And finally, the fourth phrase, Paul says, I will go to the Gentiles. Now, how do you think that was handled by the Corinthian Jews? They probably mocked him. I mean, think of it, they're probably like, you know, I, I can sort of picture them saying, good, you two deserve each other, you know, that type thing. Because they didn't have a very high opinion of the Gentiles. You know, traditional Jews consider Gentiles second or third class citizens. Yeah, I mean, remember, the, the man-made rules were that a person who ate in the home of a Gentile was automatically unclean. It wasn't God's rule, that was the man-made Jewish rules 
by the Pharisees and those, those type of folks, the, the, the scribes. In fact, when Jesus met the woman at the well, you remember this from John 4, when Jesus met the woman at the well, she was a Samaritan, and technically she wasn't even full-on Gentile. She was considered a half-breed, a mixture of Jew and Gentile. And she was positively shocked that Jesus spoke to her. You remember this, right? Remember her, her response. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For it says, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. But Paul was way past that now. I mean, he, he didn't care if most of his, his, his own fellow countrymen, he didn't care if they considered Gentiles unworthy or gross. He, you know, he cared that they were potentially children of God that needed to be saved too. And that also, I believe, is a sign of someone who is living the mission to make disciples for Jesus. And so looking at this diagram behind me with those four phrases, I want to encourage you to notice something with me. The mission that Paul was living is our stated mission too. Consider this. Being wrapped up in the Word of God is a good way for a person to love God. Showing hospitality and kindness toward other people, even those who we don't know well, is a way that we can love others. You know, one thing I really like about this, particularly this, this story, is it's not Paul setting the example here, right? It's Aquila and Priscilla. That's, this is our introduction to these guys. And the stuff that, that we're seeing in this passage, it isn't just for like super Christians, you know. This, this is for any committed believer to try to imitate. And the fact that Paul was turning aside from his own countrymen to preach the word to the very people that many of his own people would have looked down on, this is a reminder that Christians are supposed to serve the least. Of course, we are truly served, or called, excuse me, to serve everyone, right? We're called to serve one another. You know, it says, do unto, uh, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. And elsewhere it says, you know, uh, to do good to everyone, especially the household of God. And yet, the Bible shows us that God seems to have a soft spot in his heart for the least of these. Jesus said, anyone who does good unto the least of these is doing so unto him. We are to serve the least. And by proclaiming the gospel of Christ to those who don't know it, Paul shows an example of how Christians are meant to reach the lost. You know, in case anyone here isn't aware of that, this is our church's stated mission. Love God, love others, serve the least, reach the lost. It's on our website. It's in the bulletin. <laughs> but how many of us recognize it is both our duty and our privilege to engage in these four things? I mean, are, are we sacrificing our time and energy to further the mission? You know, friends, y'all are going to hear a lot more about these four things from the pulpit. And you've already heard a lot of this already. But, but please recognize this. We ought to be internalizing this. We ought to be living the mission here. This is our calling as, as, as the church of Christ, as his people, as his body. 
And there's a sense in which these all kind of flow into each other, too. They flow in order. You know, I mean, sure, they all go together, but it pretty much begins with loving God. And if we know what he did in sending his son for us, then our affections ought to belong to him. Our hearts should swell at the thought of Christ and what he's done. And then that that vertical love that he shows us, that he puts in us, it ought to begin going horizontally into our human relationships. You know, what does loving look like, though? Because we we could talk about love, you know, love this, love, oh, I love pizza or whatever, you know, but, but what does love for others look like? It's not just about feelings. Love looks like serving. You remember in John 13, right before Jesus washed his disciples' feet, it says that he decided to show his disciples the full extent of his what? Love. He showed the fullest extent of his love by washing their nasty feet. To serve is to love. Love also looks like sharing with others the message of God's Savior that he sent in order that others might hear it and also be saved. And sometimes I I think a visual is handy, so here's one until we come up with a better one. I want you to picture love kind of starting in the head. Okay? Picture love in the head. Our our repentance is called a change of mind. That's metanoia. A change of mind is repentance. He opens our eyes. And we receive him through, through faith. And then he puts a great love in our hearts for others. And so I picture, I picture it radiating out from there. And since service is a physical thing, I envision love manifesting kind of as a hand which expresses that love by serving the least. And then those still outside of the body may be lost. And then it's our, it's our honor and it's our duty to reach, those, to reach those lost people by extending God's message of grace and mercy to them as well. 